I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. Guess what? It's Lent. (laughs) Are you ready for that? And of course, today we are starting with Mark 1, 9 through 15. This is an incident of the temptation of Jesus that we see in Luke and Matthew, but in Mark, it's really, really short. So I thought I'd start asking Alan, what's up with Mark? Why is this such a little, little bitty piece? Well, that's a good question. And, um, you know, I guess the best answer that I found was that Mark was working with a separate tradition from, from Matthew and Luke. A lot of people attributed Matthew's and Luke's temptation narratives to Q, perhaps, as the, uh, as the common source that they were using. And, and Mark seems to take a little bit different tack. I mean, all three of the Synoptic Gospels agree on the order of Jesus' baptism, followed by the temptation, followed by his ministry. Mark presents us with a Jesus who's facing temptation on an ongoing basis. And so um, we see temptation throughout Mark's narrative. And uh, this is just kind of the initial, con- this is the initial confrontation, basically. I, you know, it is, it is shorter in comparison with the others, but I think it's no less significant. Well, of course, one of the big pieces in all of this is 40, um, 40 days and 40 nights that Jesus is out there. And today we thought we'd maybe spend some little bit of time thinking about this number 40, particularly in the context of Lent. And so... Why don't you put some background in as to why 40? What's going on? Well, I I think anyone with a background in Hebrew Bible would not miss the the fact that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. And Matthew's gospel specifically says that Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And that's almost a formula, 40 days and 40 nights Mm -hmm. in the Mm -hmm. Hebrew Bible. Um, um, God made the rain fall on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights in the days of Noah. Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights on Mount Sinai Mm -hmm. receiving the commandments he was to pass on to the people of Israel. Um, Elijah spent 40 days and 40 nights fleeing fleeing to Mount Horeb or Sinai to escape from Jezebel. You have the number 40 also in terms of uh, the 40 years that Mm -hmm. Israel wandered in the wilderness. And so this is really kind of a formula Mm -hmm. in the Hebrew Bible. And I think folks in that day who had any kind of background in the Hebrew Bible would have heard resonances for Moses and Elijah, especially, and perhaps also Israel wandering in the wilderness. I, I think one of my questions for you is, you know, this number 40, I think there's a, ten, a tendency to look at this very literally. Do you think this is a, a, lit, a literal reference or is it more of an approximation? It's hard to say for sure because, um, you know, 40 days and 40 nights um, could be taken simply as a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Hebrew Bible and also with reference to Jesus fasting. I mean, it's, it's hard to say for sure whether it was meant to be a literal 40 days mm-hmm. and 40 nights or not. Throughout church tradition, I think the tendency has been to take it as a literal 40 days and 40 nights, but I don't, I don't know that we have to do that. I mean, it was a significant period of time. I think there are people that get really caught up with those precise numbers and then they try to to read into them beyond where they need to read. Yeah, I wouldn't read anything more into it than there's exactly. re- there are resonances with um, like notable figures like Moses and Elijah. Right. So a little bit more than on the 40 days and 40 nights. We have, you know, in the Old Testament, um, we had the presentation of Moses, um, not only in uh, Exodus, but also in Deuteronomy. So explain this are these exactly our our assumption it's the same thing it's and it's not it's interesting (laughs) because um in exodus moses spends two 40 day 40 night periods fasting on the mountain with god and in the first one he's receiving all the instructions and it's the implication is he's receiving the instructions for the tabernacle because um exodus chapters uh 25 through um 31 have you know, the instructions for the building mm-hmm. of the tabernacle. Right, right. And so, uh, and this is right in the middle of the first 40-day, 40 40-day 40 period. And then in, in Exodus 34, after the golden calf incident, 
Moses spends another 40-day, 40-night period. And in that context, he's remaking the tablets, he's inscribing the the Ten Commandments, he's receiving more instructions. Mm -hmm. In Deuteronomy, you have... So so Deuteronomy purports to be Moses, you know, instructing the people Mm -hmm. uh, on the plains of Moab prior to their entry into the Promised Land. Mm -hmm. And so Moses is saying to them, he's recounting to them how they had tested against, tested God and rebelled against the Lord. And, and that, you know, he spent the first 40 days and 40 nights receiving the commandments. And then in, in Deuteronomy chapter 9 and 10, Moses stresses that he spent the second 40-day and 40-night period fasting and interceding on behalf of of the people because the Lord had threatened to destroy them and had said to Moses, I'll make a great nation of you. Mm -hmm. I find this significant because a lot of people see a connection between Jesus and Moses or Jesus and Elijah or Jesus and Israel, but I couldn't find anywhere that anybody made a connection between Jesus testing for 40 days and 40 nights because the gist of Jesus' temptation, as it's spelled out in Matthew and Luke, and I think as you see the ongoing narrative in Mark's gospel also, is basically how is he going to fulfill his mission? Is he going to give in to the quick and easy way, or is he going to take the path mm-hmm. that leads to the mm-hmm. cross? Well, in, in my mind, I've always read that part of Deuteronomy where Moses talks about this second 40-day, 40-night period where he's interceding for the people as a kind of testing of Moses as well as to how he was going to lead the people of mm-hmm. Israel. Was he going to say, oh, cool, I get to be the father of many nations and, and let the people be destroyed? Or was he going to, as, as uh, some have put it, um, intercede not only for the people, but also really kind of in, to intercede for God's own fidelity to his promise. Mm-hmm. Commentaries on Deuteronomy will focus on the fact that that's what Moses emphasizes in, in Deuteronomy, but I've never seen anyone draw a connection between that and Jesus' temptation, and I, I, I'm surprised at that because I think there there is a kind of um, a thematic connection between the two. Mm-hmm. You know, They're both being tested in terms of what, how are they going to fulfill their role right, with reference right. to God and with reference to the people? Right. It seems to me, and, and maybe I'm going too far, that both Jesus and then and Moses in this case would have agency also to not follow this. Yes. So yes. that's a little bit different than Jesus up on the mountain, which really is God's action. I mean, these this is really showing a, uh, a response to call. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's a really cool parallel that maybe, um, I, I think maybe people have overlooked. I mean, I think yeah. they just, again, but how do we tend to treat Deuteronomy as right. a whole? Right. We jump over it or we don't connect it. Well, and that's I what I know. found. You know, people who can make a connection between Jesus and Moses, Jesus' temptation and Moses' 40 days and 40 nights, they just sort of lump it all together. You know, I get that in Exodus, but in Deuteronomy, there is a distinction made. And Moses makes the distinction mm-hmm. that he really emphasizes that the second 40-day, 40-night period was a time he spent interceding. He spent that whole time interceding with God, Yeah, you know, that he would not destroy and. and the people of Israel. And so the implication is it took all 40 days and 40 nights for him to, right. to convince God to, to relent. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a really important uh, and maybe maybe a, a, at least something we haven't found who else has made this observation. Sometimes it's hard for me to believe that it hasn't been made. I know. So I don't want to go relieved. so far as to assume no one's done it. We just maybe missed it. But I think you've made a really important distinction and, and really important as to why Jesus, yet and again, it wasn't just because he reflected Moses and Elijah, but but this might be even more important, or mm-hmm. at least as important. Yeah, as I was. This I, I mean, I looked high. Action. I looked high and low, and I was really surprised that I couldn't That's find any kind of reference to that. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, there's a there's a paper. Cool. All right. So let's let's move on a little bit more. Um, and another one of the pieces of this, of course, is discussing this re- relationship of Israel um, yes. and, and Jesus' um, connection to Israel. Yes. And and that's another common, especially in Matthew's gospel, when people treat Matthew's um, version of the temptation, uh, the, it's common to say that Jesus is sort of repeating the experience of Israel, except he's doing it right. You know, so everything Israel went through, Jesus had to go through. So just as Israel was was sort of tested in the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus was tested in the wilderness for 40 days. Mm. 
I, I, I see that connection in Matthew. I really think the parallel with, with Moses or Elijah is a lot more direct. I think so. I agree. I think that the connection to Moses and Elijah makes in my brain, more sense, but uh, sure, sure. it's still cool. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I have to say that's, that's still a cool observation. Yeah, Let's talk a little bit more about the role of angels in this whole thing. Yeah. If we go back to Mark's gospel, so Mark's account of the, um, of the temptation of Jesus, uh, there is a, a connection between the pattern of Jesus spending 40 days in the wilderness and being served by angels mm-hmm. with Elijah's journey into the wilderness in first Kings that it's, it's, he spent 40 days and 40 nights mm-hmm. um, on his journey before he sets out on this journey. He's fed by an angel who appears mm-hmm. to him a couple of times, tells him to rest, gives right. him food to eat. Mm-hmm. I, I think part of it also uh, comes into the play in that both Elijah and Jesus were fed by angels. And, and we don't know that that's what Mark means when he says that the angels served him, but that seems to be the most likely connection. And that's um, most, most of the commentators I read, mm-hmm. and even throughout church tradition, that's been the assumption that the, the angels that were serving him were, were, were feeding him. Mm. Now, I think this connection with Elijah may be strengthened by the fact that in these just two short verses was all that Mark Mm -hmm. gives to the temptation. Mm -hmm. Mark twice mentions the fact that Jesus was in the wilderness. So it says in in verse 12 that the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. Mm -hmm. And then right afterwards, it says Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan for 40 days. You know, I think that's significant and, and, and could support a connection between Jesus and Elijah and Mark's account. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I could see that. And, the, you know, the wilderness seems to be the, 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 one of the key emphases in Mark's uh, account of the temptation. Mm-hmm. He wants to emphasize that Jesus was in the wilderness. And, of course, in the Old Testament, the, the, the wilderness has a wide range of connotations. But in this setting, there are two things that seem to be clear. Um, it's a place of confrontation with the Satan. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. it's important that we we, we, we speak oh, of sure. speak of this person as the Satan mm-hmm. because that's the way the Hebrew Bible refers to him right. to, to right. this person. And it is also the place where the wild beasts live, and so mm-hmm. Jesus is is with the wild beast. Now, some have suggested a connection between wild beast and the power of evil or demons. Um, based on Jewish extra-canonical literature, there's some references mm-hmm. to that. But in this context, it's not clear whether they actually posed a threat to Jesus mm. or, or if Jesus overcame the sort of natural enmity between humans and the, the animal oh, world oh, sure. uh, as a result of the fall. And mm-hmm. so it's sort of a, a sort of a, um, a preview of the new creation that is mentioned in Isaiah where, you know, the lion will eat straw like the ox and the wolf and the lamb will lie down together mm-hmm. right and the right child the, will play near the near the, the the snake's den you know i i can i can comment a little on wilderness in terms of for example medieval literature um which i think reflects earlier on but i uh, finding this interesting because there's definitely an idea that a fear associated mm-hmm. with outside i'm thinking of when mark's writing this and he's writing this and these people are reading it that they they hear that fear they hear that sense of the unknown that's associated with it in modern times we aren't quite as in tune with the fear that goes along with wilderness that that folks of earlier times would be the thing about it is the the outcome of jesus confrontation with satan is not specified here in this text. That's true, it's not. It's not specified, but, you know, we've already te- dealt with the exorcism at Capernaum. And, and we, we talked about this, the, the, the powers of domination and death. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe the best way for us to conceive of Satan's power in our day is, with, is to compare it with systemic evil. You know, that there is yeah, evil right. in the world that is beyond our making. Mm-hmm. And so w- when, when we have this confrontation, um, with the demon-possessed person in Capernaum, you know, the fact that Jesus is able to banish the, the unclean spirit with a word is a clear indication that, that the power of evil is broken and, mm-hmm. and all Jesus has to do is appear and these, mm. these powers of, of, of domination and death, this, this, the systemic evil in mm-hmm. the world has to, has to flee. 
Let me ask, as you're, as you're talking about this, because one of the things that I, I've mentioned a couple times today is um, your take on Jesus's agency in, in going out into the wilderness. I mean, supposedly he would have a choice not to. I would think so. I mean, I would compare it with his um, spending time in the Garden of Gethsemane praying before he was to be mm. arrested. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Jesus knew what was coming. He prays, you know, Father, let this, please take this cup away from me. Mm-hmm. Right. But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And mm-hmm. I think we were meant to see that as sort of a, um, a general characterization of Jesus' mm-hmm. approach to his ministry. You know, he, he is called to this task. Um, he, whether he knew from the beginning that he was meant to go to a cross, I don't know. But I think it's clear by the time, you know, that he gets to this point in Gethsemane, he knows he's going to be crucified. And, and he is, is naturally afraid of this. Mm-hmm. But we see him, you know, obeying God's plan and, and following through with God's plan, nevertheless. Again, as I said mm-hmm. before, I think in Mark's gospel, we have we have all kinds of confrontation with the powers of evil in general and with the Satan in particular, um, just simply that Jesus' presence creates. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a common theme in, Ma- in Mark's gospel. Um, whenever he encounters an unclean spirit, it provokes conflict. And you see Jesus constantly tested, I think, in terms of how he's going to fulfill his mission from the crowd's presence pressing him to heal their sick, uh, to the religious leaders, challenging him on every turn, to his encounters with the demoniacs, to the lack of understanding by his own disciples. You know, he, he tells them he's going to he's going to suffer all these things and be 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 killed. And Peter says, you know, this can't happen to you. And and he says to him, get behind yeah, me, right, Satan. Right. You know? <laughs> so I mean, even his own disciples and even his own Prayer, you know, his, it was right. his own prayer that the Father would take the cup of suffering away from him. All of that, I think, represents um, Jesus undergoing this this test of his of his uh, whether he is going to fulfill mm-hmm. uh, God's mission as he has been co- as he has been called mm-hmm. to fulfill it, which which basically means whether he is going to ultimately. Um, uh, determined to take the path that's going right. to lead to a cross, and and I think we're meant to see in Mark's gospel that Jesus does overcome all those forms of temptation and he does complete his mission mm-hmm. by going to the cross. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think this emphasizes the sense of choice that Jesus had. This is humanity piece of Jesus. And yet I also think this identifies his divinity, but I think, I think that's just a really cool, what we're seeing going on here in terms of, sure. of the fullness of who Jesus is. You know, as I, the thought occurs to me just as we're talking, you know, I'm not even sure we should even frame it in terms of Jesus' humanity versus his divinity, because Jesus is human and divine, fully Good human point. and divine in one person. And so it is Jesus, the Son of God, and Jesus, the one who is fully human, right. who is who is dealing with this temptation. And we might think that if he's the Son of God and, and the divine one, you know, the fully divine one, that that oh, you know, temptation is not going to even be a problem. Mm-hmm. But but that's not the way the Bible presents right. it. The Bible right. presents this as a real temptation, and for it to be real, I, I think he would have to have a choice. I think so, too. I think so, yeah. too. And that's, um, yeah, that's really good. That's good stuff. All right, more questions. Um, another piece of this is that we can compare um, Jesus here to Adam. Um, I've heard this in a sermon uh, before. Um and so, what's your take on that? Is that too far? Well, and there are there are New Testament scholars, Mark scholars, who make that comparison as if it is just a given, just a given. Um, and um, the, the basis for this is that there is um, uh, a Jewish. One of the Jewish pseudepigrapha is called the Life of Adam and Eve. Now, this is a document that has, exists in different forms. In the Greek version of it, it's called the Apocalypse of Moses. The, mm. the version that we have that's called the Life of Adam and Eve is a Latin version, mm. and it exists in other versions. So, you know, it's one of those, right. it's one of those documents that's undergone significant revision. And the, each of these, it's not, like, it's not like the Latin Life of Adam and Eve is just a translation from the Greek Apocalypse right. of Moses. It's a wholly different document. Sure. And so in this Life of Adam and Eve, you have sort of an expanded tale about what happened in the garden. And um, Adam undergoes not one but two 40-day periods of penitence for um, Eve's 
a tendency to to disobey, I guess you might say. And and I am one who I'm all in favor of of looking at, into the Jewish extra canonical literature to understand the thought world that mm-hmm. surrounded sure. the first century and, and the Gospels and, and, and how people would understand this. I don't think that the life of Adam and Eve was that uh, common of a text mm. for, for people to really I'd be familiar with this story. Um, you know, there's some Jewish extra-canonical books like First Enoch, that, right, that were very known. prevalent. Mm-hmm. The Book of Jubilees. Mm-hmm. These are books that were very prevalent and probably right. probably widely known. I'm not so sure that I would say that the life of Adam and Eve was. Now, the Apocalypse of Moses is actually alluded to in Second Peter. Mm-hmm. So, so that's a different story. But I'm I'm just I, I wasn't convinced that 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 we should really see Jesus as um, being compared with Adam here myself. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. That's just my take on it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I would. I think the comparison with Moses is the one that's most apt for me. Right. That, I think that, that's what the writers were after. I personally think it's what the writers were after. And well, and in fact, in fact, um, some would say that that um, the Matthew's version of the temptation is kind of a. Um, an interpretive rewriting of some chapters of Deuteronomy because you know you've got all these all these verses that that Jesus quotes mm. are from Deuteronomy right right uh, and so um, there you have that connection with Moses yeah again. which that makes sense yeah. I, that that makes sense and then when later on in the Transfiguration you now we we talk about well are you Elijah or are you Moses mm-hmm. I, I I think that's the emphasis that the, the gospels are trying to make, not mm-hmm. this, mm-hmm. not not to Adam. In this, this one case. is this one is kind of arcane mm-hmm. for me, and I I you know I I just I don't think that the life of Adam and Eve was that well known of a mm-hmm. document. And again, I don't have a lot of uh, scholarship to back me up on this, but I see the the most direct parallels between Moses mm-hmm. the intercessor, mm-hmm. you know, in, fasting and interceding for Israel for forty days and forty nights, as well as interceding. For the fidelity of God's purpose, and Jesus um, fasting and being tempted uh, in the wilderness, uh, basically regarding how is he going to fulfill his role uh, mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. reference mm-hmm. to the people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're both. I, to me, I see them both being tested in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the final, the final uh, one. I think question I want to ask is how does this situation, this temptation reflect then Jesus's final destination at the cross. I mean, what's the connection there? I mean, it, is it? Well, Does I it? think so. I mean, because I, I, I really do think Mark writes his gospel with an eye on the cross from the very beginning. Yeah, that's true. As we've said before when we talked about Mark's gospel, mm-hmm. that's right. the only human who's not possessed by an unclean spirit who recognizes Jesus as the Son of God as the Roman centurion at the cross. And right, I think we're meant right. to see that you can only understand Jesus' identity as the Son of God properly in light of the cross. And so, yeah, I think I think the shadow of the cross really falls over the whole Gospel of Mark. And so I think, I think we should see that the temptation in Mark chapter 1 is the first of many temptations that Jesus is going to face mm-hmm. throughout his ministry as to whether he is going to... F- Actually, follow through with his calling uh, to 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 take the path that is going to lead him ultimately to a cross. That's that's an interesting point, and I think one we might miss because when we say the temptation, we think of this one, and mm-hmm. yet you're suggesting that this is really one, maybe the launch point of many temptations. This is a a process. I would say I would say Mark presents Jesus' ministry as as a series mm-hmm. of continual temptations. You know, of course, now I'm jumping to when we see ourselves as disciples of Christ and we see ourselves growing, that to me, and if you will, sanctifying in our lives and how we're doing, that's a process as opposed to a one-time thing. And I think that might be also another important distinction that that you just made there. I think we jump over the rest of Jesus's life is is also being filled with temptation. Sure. Mm -hmm. Well, and 
Whether or not Jesus knew from the start that the destination of his journey was going to be a cross, I don't know. It doesn't really doesn't really make that clear. But by the time we get to the passion narrative in, in Mark yeah. chapter eight, yeah. Jesus says, you know, the Son of Man is going to be rejected and is going right. to be beaten and is going to suffer many things, and he's going to be killed, and on the third day he's going to rise again. And and so from that point it's clear that Jesus knows mm-hmm. what the destination of his journey is. And interesting, and I think, you know, we talked about this agency of Jesus at all those times, Jesus knew, mm-hmm. and I can get out of this. And yet, each time, each time, there's this, this, this sense of, but this is what I'm called to do, mm-hmm. and how I ultimately will respond to my call. And, and interestingly, in the Greek, um, uh, we may get to this again, but in the Greek, um, it uses a word, a little word, die, delta epsilon iota, die. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. It's, 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 a, it's an impersonal verb that simply means one must. But most folks who, who work with the gospel tradition will say to you that it is implied there that the necessity is from the fact that God has determined that mm-hmm. this is what must happen. And Jesus recognizes that this is God's will mm-hmm. and that this is what God has determined has to happen. Mm-hmm. And so um, um, even the wording of it there makes it clear that Jesus, I think, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, sees this as the, the, um, the task that God has set before him. Wow. Fascinating. Well, well thank you, Alan. Thank you. We'll come back. Yeah. We're back, and uh, Christy is going to share with us from her font of knowledge with, uh, with reference to the Reformers. You folks probably know that um, the reason why we're talking about Jesus' temptation on the first Sunday of Lent is that the lectionary tends to focus on the temptation of Jesus as uh, sort of the pattern for the 40 days of Lent. Uh, it's traditional in the church that we observe 40 days of Lent because as, 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 a, as a kind of an following the, the example of Jesus who fasted for 40 days uh, in the wilderness. So I just want to start off by asking Christy, what did the reformers make out of all of that? Sure. Um, you know, obviously they, they recognize the, the 40 days and 40 nights. And, and like we talked about with Alan, they were very much in tune with Jesus's experience being re- related to Moses and Elijah. They saw that right away. I actually picked up a, a quote from a, a, an English Puritan um, 16th century figure. Um, but I, just to give you this idea, I think he sums up really what the reformers observed, you know, as Moses fasted 40 days at the giving, giving of the law, and as Elijah fasted 40 days at the restoring of the law, so the Lord Jesus fasts for 40 days at his coming to preach the gospel. And he did this so that he might correspond to these former exemplars, because they prefigured what he was to do, and partly, as I said, to confirm to us the certainty of his calling. Mm. So um, yeah, he's, he's not a, a hugely significant figure, but yet when I look at Luther, when I look at Calvin, they all are making that very simple observation that we made that, that Jesus um, re- reflected Moses and Elijah. And what was interesting about it is they said they really had to do that to be, uh, to be regarded in that kind of same vein of importance. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't have Jesus being less than and therefore tempted less, which again, I think reflects maybe... Um, um, the Deuteronomy piece mm-hmm. that, that Alan pointed out. I think that might be embedded within w- where the reformers were. I did not find them actually talking about that, but but saying, look, Jesus had to have that same kind of level of experience um, and that same kind of challenge from God um, that's just part of the, the tradition. Well, and that makes sense because Moses is the is the beginning of the high point of God's revelation. Elijah is seen as sort of a is seen as sort of a revival of that high point of mm-hmm. God's uh, revelation. And so then, for Jesus to be compared to Moses and Elijah, mm-hmm. you know, that makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. that he plays mm-hmm. a similar role. Right, right. And so whether. Whether in retrospect we look at the gospel writers as, as, as making that because they wanted to make that comparison, and or indeed if that's a very literal thing, I think it's, it doesn't matter either way. It's, it's emphasizing the importance of, of the figure of Jesus. So, um, 
I think what's Calvin, um, it goes a little bit further. So with Calvin, you always have to remember that there's the uh, the sovereignty of God. Remember, that's his like mm-hmm. number one thing. So this didn't happen as some opposite force, but rather that a God allowed it to happen, allowed Jesus to be um, challenged. Uh, so what an interesting space is, is that for Calvin then, this temptation was the ultimate sign of divine grace and power that Jesus could overcome it. It was this temptation by which then showed God's ultimate grace when we too are challenged. So in Calvin's world, and this is going to make sense for all of the Calvinists out there, that this temptation and and trial is part of who we are because it reminds us when we can live in a God's grace, how loving and kind God is. So <laughs> the frozen, so he's drawing a pastoral lesson from it. Yeah, well, he does. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so an interesting space. Um, of course, in Luther, it does not spend so much time with that sovereignty of God. So for Luther, that's not as, as big of a piece. But for Calvin to explain this, I mean, this is, again, God allows this to happen. Uh, this is part of the part of the providential pattern is that you have to be, have this temptation that all people must live into this temptation. That's part of our lives and our agency to choose to act in God's grace. So that, that sounds very, it sounds, and it is very, very Calvin. <laughs> yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. So one of the key elements of Lent is that we, um, observe the 40 days of Lent. If you take the Sundays out from Ash Wednesday to Easter, you know, there are 40 days in there. And, and we observe the 40 days fasting uh, in to, I guess, to honor and to replicate Jesus' 40 days of fasting. Um, what's the big deal with 40? Does the number 40 have a significance with the Reformers? Oh, so there's a, lot, there's a lot of things that went into that question. So just to pull 40, by and large, especially your magisterial Reformers, don't make a big deal out of 40. That just is a, a number that is in the Old Testament tradition. It comes to the current one. It's associated with Moses, but there's nothing particularly magical or about 40. Um, but I think it's important to point out is that there's times prior to that where, where numerology as a whole is quite big. That becomes big in the Middle Ages. And some of those ideas that numbers have this kind of, they tell us something more. Uh, there's a hidden message in them. hidden message yeah. kind of moves its way up. There's a few folks that get involved with it. Um, one of my favorite... Uh, I'll call him a reformer. He's a contemporary of Luther. He's actually a Lutheran pastor. His name is Michael Steifel. Um, I ran across this guy because he's also a hymn writer. And he's also, if you're a mathematician, known for his work on um, logarithms. Mm. Um, But he was this mathematician that liked to see magical things happen. And so he would predict things with numbers. And so he's one of these examples of guys that put maybe more stock into the numbers in the Bible than he should have, um, and actually predicted the end of the world. And it didn't happen. And, and, you know, all of his followers, you know, sold all their goods and waited for, oh oh yeah, oh yeah. And, uh, you know, Luther had to go beg for him because Luther saw, you know, somebody that was that was really following into kind of this medieval tradition of, of mathematical mystery and yet trying to apply kind of humanist ideas to it. So he, he was kind of mixed up. But he's one of several that you see that still kind of has this pattern, but it kind of dies off. Um, it kind of dies off as a whole during this time, and it's kind of picked up again in an enlightenment. So I think if, if you would go maybe Google this, you might find all kinds of big predictions around 40 mm. and the significance of 40 and even the um, shame involved if you aren't participating in this 40-day kind of mm. uh, kind of thing. Mm. Anyway, I, I bring that up because I think, you know, we're talking about 40 and we, we want to make a bigger deal out of it maybe than it is. And they're saying, nope, this is just this is just a number. Um, it, it might even be so far as to say it really is reflecting a long, a long time. Um, but that does not mean that it's not important in the church and right. in the history of the church. Right. And of course, what begins to happen is the 40 days becomes very specifically associated with um, Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday. And that then we are within the, uh, within the Roman tradition, 
having these periods of fasting where we mimic Christ, where we are involved, uh, the laity is involved in, in, in mimicking Christ and, and, and everybody else. And of course, the fast days ended up becoming, and if you're friends of Roman Catholic or if you're Roman Catholic and listening, fasting on Friday, no meat on Friday, and, which is still very much part of the tradition. And um, our reformers, it's kind of interesting to read. It's, there's an assumption that they're against fasting, which is actually not true at all. They think it's actually a very good um, s- discipline. Uh, Calvin, in fact, um, I just read a nice article about French Calvinists in the early modern period that were very active in mm-hmm. fasting, that that became very much part of their public piety. But what the reformers were opposed to was why they are fasting. And there's a sense of that, are you fasting to gain favor with God? Mm. Or um, are you fasting because it looks good? And as he said, how many of these people really fast? They're eating so much food for lunch that then they don't, aren't even hungry at dinner. So that's really not the idea of it. So, they're really attacking it as Roman Catholic abuse. And then, of course, people are bragging about, oh, well, I have to fast, as opposed to um, part of their own piety. I think it's interesting because as you come, as you come back around, if most folks that I know that are Roman Catholic today that are, that are fasting are at least thinking they're doing this in terms of piety, not in terms of I'm trying to earn my way to heaven by doing this. But that subtle emphasis is different. And mm-hmm. likewise, I see many Protestants in particular jumping back into fasting as, as something they can do, as a, dis- a spiritual discipline that they can do. So what, a, what an interesting, it becomes not about what the, you see, but r- rather about the reasons that you're doing it. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I've done some study on fasting, uh, not necessarily historically, but in present day. And, you know, 40 days, that's a long time to fast. Right. And, um, you know, especially if, like with Moses, the implication, and, and actually it wasn't just implied, it was made explicit that Moses was was in God's presence, and so he was sustained well, by by the heavenly presence during that 40 days and, Elijah and 40 was nights. Su- Elijah was sustained by the angels. He, I was, mean, he was actually fed food. Right, right, fed food by the angels. So, yeah, and, and that's a big part of what the reformers are getting involved with too, that this is a really a divine, mm-hmm. this is unique of Christ. We should not be trying to be little Christs and doing the same thing. We are not divine. And in fact, I got to read this from uh, Calvin. <laughs> it's true to Calvin. You'll love it. Um, you know, he says, look, this is wicked and abominable mockery of Christ to attempt by this contrivance of fasting to conform themselves to him as their mode. Um, hey, this is this is taking away Christ's majesty. You're you're right. trying to you're trying to imitate Christ in a way that you cannot do it. Yeah, well, and that's kind of what I was thinking. I mean, you know, fasting. I mean, even the people who really are serious about fasting as a spiritual discipline, you know, a thirty day fast is is seen as a big deal. It's a big deal, exactly. And and for, you know, Moses going without food and water, it says, right for forty days. That's physically impossible. It, it is physically, yeah. It's a physically impossible. Yeah. We would <laughs> we would not make it. Yeah, you and know. So, and if the and if the angels ministering to Jesus were feeding him some, you know, perhaps it was it would be seen not as a total fast, but as a uh, what's called a partial fast. Right. the the whole The whole fasting thing, though was kind of a big break in the Reformation. And many of you are probably familiar with uh, Ulrich Fingley. And they had a little party in Zurich at um, the publisher, Christopher Froschauer's house. And several of the main kind of uh, Swiss reformers, the early ones, were there at the house. And they decided they were going to break the fast that day. And Froschauer served sausages to everybody. And this was actively condemned by the Roman Catholic Church. But it really was that first step into mm. why are we making people do this? Why is right. this become why has this become an act of great sin if I eat meat mm. on Friday? And so that uh, break with the fast is one of the big kind of hallmarks in the Reformation, if you're familiar wow. with it. And mm. um, yeah, um, 
it's and Zwing, what's interesting about Zwingli is um, even though Zwingli was present and even though he uh, endorsed it, he actually didn't partake that day. <laughs> Again, it's that they have been brought up with that as part of your responsibility as a good Christian to be involved. So rationalizing, okay, I can do this, but doing it is a big step. Somewhere in your mind is... Am I am I committing some kind of um, mortal sin sure. because I'm not participating? And that's what they wanted to break away from was you need to fast if this helps. An obligation. It's if, a holy obligation. A holy yeah. obligation. Yeah. Um, and it's judged by the church as opposed to your interaction with God yeah. and your response to God. So a very interesting uh, event. I think it was fif- I think it was 1522. Um, was the date for that, but wow. um, yeah, so really early in the in the Reformation process. But this was a really this was a really big deal. And of course, these days, I think it would be hard for those of us in the Protestant tradition to even understand why that would be such a big deal for them. But, right. But I mean, you know, if you're raised like Swingley was in a church that that just reinforced over and over again every year mm-hmm. that this is a holy obligation that as a Christian you must do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it gets ingrained. It's like mm-hmm. it's like comparing it with people who every time the doors are open you're supposed to be in church, you know. Right. And that's right. that's a tradition that is that is not so much holding true for this generation but for, but for an, an older generation that absolutely. was Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and you know, when you think about this whole coronavirus situation and you think about, you know, closing the church doors, we know if they're open, we're going to have people that are coming that yeah. are be greatly endangered because that's what yeah. they do is go to church. And, and that's a, what they've been taught all their lives. Exactly. So you, can, you can understand Zwingli from that standpoint. He was taught that all of his life, all of his conscious mm-hmm. life. He probably observed the Lenten right. fast. Well, and it, you can mark this to Luther. You know, initially Luther wouldn't marry, even though he had identified this was the right thing to do and ultimately he did and ultimately Zwingli would act on this as well but there's one thing to intellectualize and then there's one thing to actually Actually, do follow through with it yeah and not doing in this case becomes becomes this kind of new spiritual challenge Mm, right really so the so the spiritual discipline was not to not to give into the pressure to to see this as a holy obligation exactly exactly because it's to follow what your conscience is and to find what things uh, you are called to do. Now, as I said, interestingly enough, there becomes a pattern of, of fasting in the Reformed tradition. That's, mm-hmm. I, I want to emphasize that because I grew up without any concept of fasting at all. In fact, mm-hmm. my Roman Catholic friends did, and I didn't. Um, there was also a sense, um, I think, that they were more holy than I was. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, they have this fasting tradition. I don't have that. But what really appears is that the fasting process that took took place, for example, in France here that um, I read about um, was perhaps it was even more of a community oriented. You did not have to do it. But when you did, people came together and they 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 sang psalms together uh, and yeah. they so the whole fasting piece became part of building up the spiritual body of so the church instead of eating they instead of eating they 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 worship together yeah 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 it seems to me that if they're if they're if they're participating in worship as a po- as opposed to just going without food i mean there, it seems to me there is a kind of a positive spin on that, mm-hmm. you know, because you're 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 doing this together as a community. You're not bragging about it either. Right. I'm fasting. I can't right. be with you. I can't right. because we're all doing this together. It almost right. it reminds me a little bit of of some of the practices done by our Muslim friends who mm, sure. you know get together during Ramadan. Ramadan. And, all right. Well, thanks, Christy. Thanks. Hi, everybody. We are back. And we wanted to set forth a little bit of information about the tradition of fasting in Lent. And um, we both have done a little bit of research there. So I'll let Alan kind of lay out um, how this tradition got started and and we can move into how that uh, impacts us today. Well, thanks, Christy. It's, you know, compared to the way people observe Lent today, it's almost comical in comparison to where it all started because it all started with you didn't eat meat you didn't eat eggs you didn't eat cheese you didn't eat these things at all during lent 
Now, you know, we, we have to specify that the Sundays were seen as a celebration of the resurrection. So the Sundays in Lent were not days for fasting, so they could break the fast on Sundays. But the rest of the days from Ash Wednesday to Easter, they didn't eat any of these things. And so then, you know, it, it morphed from that to you, you're not going to eat during the day. You're only going to eat in the evening. Um, and, of course, now today in the Roman Catholic Church, it is basically you simply, go, you simply don't eat red meat on Fridays. <laughs> which, exactly. Which to me, you know, it's almost, to me it almost trivializes the whole thing because what's the big deal? So you eat fish <laughs> instead of meat. Well, I love fish. And, you know, you, you see, I mean, you have these fish fries all over the place, right, right on Fridays right. to raise money for, for good causes. But, you know, people gorge themselves for their Lenten fast uh, yeah, on fried exactly. catfish, right? Exactly. You know, right, <laughs> it's like, right. Well, that's an interesting way to observe a, a, it a is. Dis- spiritual discipline. It is, it is, <laughs> and it, it is, and it's. It also becomes a bit of, you know, oh, what did you give up for Lent this year? And mm-hmm. it becomes really more about, uh, ha ha, I did this rather than, I'm better than you. a true. I mean, to me, if you give up something for Lent. It's it's between you and God. You don't need to go. Well, Jesus said, if you this. fast, wash your face, comb your hair, exactly. You know, put on your regular clothes. Don't don't let anybody know that you're fasting. Exactly. Don't let them know you're fasting, and that seems to be just the opposite of what many people do. They tell you right away what they're giving up for Lent, and yeah. and so it's become a bit trivialized, and it's become not about this idea of of penitence that may have been um, associated with the Roman Catholic tradition, anyway. Sure. You know. Sure. Um, so yeah, I yeah. Think- the whole point of, of the Lenten discipline was to spend time in prayer, mm-hmm. to spend time um, uh, examining your life because you you're supposed to examine your life in preparation for um, celebrating mm-hmm. the feast of, of Easter, the festival of Easter, mm-hmm. and you need to examine where you find sin in your life, and you're supposed to repent of that. And so it's it's, it's yeah, there were there was some it was a serious thing. Mm-hmm. It was, and and I'm sure there are folks that that do take it very seriously so mm-hmm. but i think as a as a command for the entire church and, and of course this is one of the things that our reformers reject uh, objected to was that you are commanding something of somebody but if they're not spiritually called to do this then it it's really a flat observance it yeah. really doesn't it really doesn't hold any weight but instead that you are doing this out of your own spiritual calling and i think when we look at when we look at uh, a process of sanctification, when we look at this kind of walking with God, this might be something you pick up later in your spiritual mm-hmm. life as 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 an additional call that you're responding to, but uh, maybe to ask somebody who's new in the faith that it's not going to make any sense to them. I, yeah. I guess I don't, and I find more people caught up with what am I going to give up for Lent rather than even understanding. Mm-hmm. Why are they giving something up? Why are they giving up? something up? <laughs> yeah. Right, it becomes it becomes all a, a big deal, and 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 sharing that. And then I have found this is one this one actually really bothers me. You know, when if you've had people to your home and you've 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 made a, a dinner for them, and they're like, oh well, I can't eat that because I've given it up for Lent, and I don't think that's ever the in, intent because it, it makes right. someone else feel bad right. while you are doing some kind of self promotion, and mm-hmm. that's not that's just not acceptable. You know, what do we do about it today? Should we be fasting today? What do you think? Yeah, and you know, I have I have um, given up things for Lent. The most significant, uh, I guess, fast, I guess you would call it, that I've done for Lent was that I gave up, I, f- I fasted from TV mm-hmm. for Lent one year. And um, at that point in my life, that was a big deal because mm-hmm. I would usually watch TV every evening. Mm-hmm. And uh, I must confess, at this point in my life, I don't watch TV right. that much. That wouldn't be a big deal for me now, but then it was, it right. was, it was a discipline. Right. And the thing that I learned about fasting, and I learned this from Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline, was if you're going to fast, um, don't just go without food. Replace that time that you would spend right. eating yes. with some form yes. of spiritual discipline. Exactly. And so that's, that's something that I think is, is good advice. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can get into that that spirit and you can and make it a spiritual discipline, then it becomes a time to ref- to reflect in a very different way. I mean, yes. you're thinking, "Gosh, I have 
I have given up my dinner for all, every every day this week and imagine imagine what Christ went through and I think it can give us some insight into an insight into temptation as well because sure. when your stomach growls and you are hungry um, and you aren't filling that that need that again that temptation to eat is is very very strong sure um, it can become a, a means of exercising your spiritual muscles so to speak mm-hmm, and developing mm-hmm. some spiritual strength mm-hmm. I, I must i must go back to though the fact that it to me and i don't mean to be too negative about this but it just strikes me that when people talk about you know what they're giving up for lent it strikes me as very superficial and very trivial these days yeah i do too i do too and i personally i i, I don't think i'll be encouraging my congregation to give things up Mm-hmm. Um, now I know, you know, our congregation does something instead. They, they, they devise a new spiritual discipline. They do one of these Lenten studies, right, right. We've which done that. is very well, um, is very well attended. It's very well, it's, it's very well accepted. People very, get very much involved in that. Um, that's some people have you know, feel that that's a better way mm-hmm. or a different way maybe to, encourage a renewed spiritual awareness the other thing is we have to allow that if you if you slip up it's 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 just a slip and you and you go and then you go back well the, you know what's what strikes me about this and a legitimate fast is the constant awareness mm-hmm. you know and and when when you're working on that you're thinking every time you encounter somebody how am i going to respond to them how am i going to interact with them how am i going to be give a positive spin well, let's let's shift gears a little bit and think about um, the story of jesus temptation and its role in our lives today calvin as you mentioned sort of took um, uh, a pastoral approach mm-hmm. and said mm-hmm. that we could we could be encouraged by jesus example in that god enabled him by grace to endure the temptation that he underwent. And of course, in our day, we are faced with all sorts of evil in, in our lives. Yeah. And so how, how do you think um, Jesus' temptation can serve to encourage us today? Yeah, I think sometimes, sometimes we place Jesus on that pedestal so high that we forget his humanity. We forget that he encountered the same kinds of temptations that we would run into, that the evil lurks the back door um, or the front door uh, of where Jesus is. And so when we can see that, you know, not only does he experience the worst death possible, he also endured and overcame this, this temptation, these temptations that just lurk at our sides all the time and um i mean i think that's a maybe a a real encouragement to just how graceful god is um that we can we can use that example if you will um yeah and you know when i think about jesus temptation i think i think if people don't say it out loud the thought occurs to them well he was jesus it, it was easier for him and I don't I think, think that's the point. Yeah, I don't, I don't think, think it's so easier either. at all. In fact, look at the temptation. Look at the challenge. It's, right. it's the challenge is impossible. Uh, the, the the temptation in Gethsemane to mm-hmm. am I going to 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 allow myself to undergo this bu- brutal execution or not? And, right, right, and right. I've never had to endure that temptation. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we, we like to say, well, it was Jesus' human side that was tempted. Well, I don't know that we want to separate Jesus as fully divine and Jesus fully human from, from right. one another. Jesus is both fully divine and fully human, and the temptations were very real. The, I, yeah, I think we have to emphasize that those temptations are very real. Yeah. yeah On the I other mean, hand, I think they're temptations that maybe you and I would fail. Jesus doesn't fail, ultimately, by dying on the cross for our sins because right. we— we may fail some of these tests, right? And we do fail some of our some of our tests. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I think it's a little bit like observing the Lenten discipline. If we fall to temptation, it doesn't mean that oh well, now we're done and we're you know we're we're condemned and and there's nothing else we can do. You 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 get back up and you dust yourself off and you you get back on the path and you continue to learn from those kinds mm-hmm. of experiences and you continue to follow Jesus. You know, as, as you're talking about this, I keep thinking about um, this. I keep thinking about Jesus's agency. I keep thinking about our agency. And sometimes I think, 
you know, we are responding in faith out of and to doing these different types of disciplines. But we have to remember that God is the author of it. God is the author of our lives. Are we living into the lives that he set forth for us, our call? Are we living into our our definition of it? Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think this provides us that opportunity to live into grace um, by giving us an opportunity to to be in a space where we're, we're, we're giving into Lenten disciplines where we're giving where temptation becomes even more real for us because we've, because it's part of spiritual discipline, but remembering that if we fail, that's okay because it will help us um, maybe identify God's space in our life. Sure. Does that make sense? Yes. So in other words, that God is the author, not, that God's the author, not us. And I think we tend to think we're the author. So when we fail, we think, Oh, I failed. Therefore, my faith is failed. That's not it at all. It's that we need to rely on God. That yeah. this is that that we need God's space and God's grace in our lives. So I think yeah. I would say, in my experience, um, some of the worst things I've had to endure in my life, they were they tested me. They tested my faith. They tested me personally. Yeah. And I want to say that was grace. Because God's grace was working in my life to shape my life in the way it needed to be shaped. Mm-hmm. And, and whether we like it or not, that oftentimes happens most powerfully in our lives through the things that we think are the worst things that could ever happen yeah, to us. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and yet at the same time, I would say that when when I've stumbled and fallen or when I've made a mistake, the grace is there as well, receiving us and, and accepting us and encouraging us to get back up and to, and to, and to keep following Christ yeah. in our lives. And so, yeah, I like that concept of, of temptation as an opportunity to live into God's gracious mm-hmm. uh, purpose for each of us. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, Paul says that that purpose for each of us is to conform us to the image of Christ. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've kind of joked sometimes that I must be really hard-headed because some of us take a little more conforming than others. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What a cool concept. Yeah, I was working with my college kids, and I just was struck by one one young woman in particular who, she just has this very honest faith, and she's just, you know, she just kind of lives into it. It's It's really a cool, cool thing. And I think of her, and I think of, I think of her, Maybe her her kind of understanding of God's grace more than maybe some folks do. Maybe 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 her experience is just is just seated in that. I'm not sure, but um. I do think that people who have been through some of the worst things in life probably do have a have a deeper appreciation of grace because God's grace sustains you through those. Things. I think, yeah. and I think that may take where we are in terms of of how we respond to Lenten fasting, for example. And, and, and how it fits into what what our call is on our lives. And it may not be your call to, you, you, you might not need to be in the space sure. to, to, to do fasting. And right. I think that's okay. It well, for some people, it's, 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 it's physically unhealthy it's for physically them to unhealthy. fast from food. Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. And you don't want to jeopardize something no. else in your life because you you're trying do that. to fast. Yeah. Exactly. It's, yeah. not, it's not a healthy thing to do. Yeah. So. You know, when I think about this passage and about Jesus as the example, I'm I'm drawn to a passage in First Peter two, where where Peter is encouraging believers who are suffering, and and he says that you were called to this because Christ left you an example that you might follow in his footsteps. And it says, you know, when he was when he suffered, mm-hmm. he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself into the hands of God, basically. Mm-hmm. And and I love that passage because. Um, I think it speaks to this grace, but it also speaks to the idea that that Jesus really is our example. And I, I hear what Calvin is saying about you know trying to trying to imitate a forty day fast as an abominable mockery of Christ. You right. know, but at the same time, I mean, I think that is the definition of the Christian life: is that we are seeking to follow Christ as our example. Of course, he encouraged fasting in the same in the same space. He's like fasting if it's from the right space. Yes. So he he's taking this directly from practices of sure. doing this for your own kind of 
You have to gain merit. By your this. merit, yeah, yeah. You're gaining merit. You're gaining attention. You're gaining. You're, you're gaining. You're proving you're, to yourself. You're gaining. You're gaining salvation. Basically, you're earning salvation. Yeah, exactly. Because as I said, just right in the same, you know, a few sentences later, it says, "But fasting is okay mm-hmm, sure. if it comes out of of piety." I think it is appropriate to recognize that fasting for 40 days is something that's extreme and, and unusual. And, you know, uh, most most people can't do that and shouldn't do that. Uh, but at the same time, Jesus still is our example and in all of life, and we can follow him and, you know, seek to, seek to emulate his, uh, his perseverance, his faithfulness to God's purpose mm-hmm. through all the temptations that he faced throughout right. his ministry. Right. So, well, welcome to Lent, folks. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Christy. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together... Listen Listen for for the the word. word.